On this AV Nation special, we sit down with Henry Clifford, CEO of Livewire, and talk to him about how he got started in the business, the importance of remote support for integrators, and how to just think about business management for you and your company. All that and more next on this AV Nation special. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is an AV Nation special. A conversation with Henry Clifford. This is an AV Nation special. I am your host, Mitchell Tulin, and we are here just to have a nice conversation with a friend that is pretty familiar to you if you've seen a show like Resi Week. He's shown up a few times, uh, either talking about stories that we have on the hand or writing them himself. Uh, he also has his hands on remote support for integrators in the residential space. And if you haven't figured it out yet um, or you know read the title, I am talking about Livewire CEO Henry Clifford. Henry, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mitch. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. To start, I guess we should go to the top and ask you how uh, you started in the AV industry. But I want to preface it a little bit that in my experience, people don't really choose AV. It kind of chooses them. They seem to like fall into it more often than not. Um, so do you have a similar experience or did you actually say, oh, I want to join the AV industry? I, I think it it's probably uh, a combination of passion and uh and and psychological warfare from an early age my i grew i grew up with with a grandfather and various aunts and uncles and so forth who were all uh heavy into the electrical engineering field so my my grandfather worked on a a precursor to the printed circuit board called multi-wire he worked on color tv worked on radar and uh instead of playing shuffleboard he he was always soldering or working on a uh, some kind of Heath kit uh, little gadget. So so going to his house as a kid, I was sort of thrown into this world of um, really cool gadgets everywhere, and he was super passionate about sound. And so I can even remember from an early age, he had digital delays on his audio gear and was obsessed with telling me about the different types of audio fidelity and why it was important, why good sound was important. And I remember even really, really early on seeing early versions of compact discs at his house um, before they had even you know gone for gone they're on sale in the U S early examples of gear from Japan that had never, would never seen in the U S and, so that that kind of began the uh, I, I'd call it the uh, the drug addiction around technology from an early age, and from there I was really just I started taking gear apart physically, just taking it apart and put putting it back together, and of course you got all those spare parts left over, and then uh, nothing works, and so I, I was really good at sort of destroying gear and. Um, and then eventually you got better at t- putting it back together. Yeah, eventually. Um, and 
and so that kind of progressed and then i was always so i always had really cool uh stereo setups from an early age you know either built my own or went to radio shack um that that moved into you know when i bought my first car i think i kind of put in a crutchfield system and turn on the radio and the windshield wipers came on and, and again, just learning through failure. And, um, so, so this, this is my, this is my kind of my childhood of, of screwing around with technology and, um, you know, kind of, kind of mended or melded in with a, a passion for selling. And so on the school bus, I was always selling something. So whether it was blow pops or gum or, you know, I always had some kind of little side hustle going. So I think, I think the two were bound to sort of meet up at some point. And so this, this technology passion and the sales passion kind of blended together, I think finally after I was an undergrad and, uh, and I had a work study job, you know, I needed to sort of help put myself through school. And, uh, really at, at that point, I wanted to know how much the highest paid student worker on campus made, and it was something to do with technology. And so, I, and, and at that point, I think it was building websites. So I learned how to do that and, and really became pretty good with information technology, computers and networking and so forth. And I still had all this kind of passion for sound and technology and all the, uh, all the above. Little did I know that, that those elements would sort of converge later on in, in my career as well. Um, fast forward again, I'm in, in undergrad, my, my little passion for computers has now evolved. I've got a consulting business and, um, making a pretty decent living for a 19, 20 year old. And, um, again, graduate and, um, take my consulting practice, um, down to Richmond, Virginia, where I move, move in with my then girlfriend, now wife and, um, 9-11 hits and um, quickly my website building skills became sort of less and less relevant. I think the words disintermediated and um, at the same time bought a house and looked around for somebody to come and put cool technology in the house because I still wanted wanted that had never gone away. And uh, two folks I, th I think showed up in my orbit. One One guy had some missing teeth and kind of scared my wife. And then another guy didn't want to talk to me unless I had a hundred thousand dollars to spend. And he was sort of too cool for school. So I thought, you know, nobody's taking kind of a consulting or professional services approach to this space. Why don't I give it a go? And so I told my friends excitedly, I think I shared with my wife, I'm going to start this smart home company. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. Um, uh, they said, you know, don't you have to like drill ho holes in people's houses and you have to have licenses and things for that sort of thing. I'm like, yeah, we'll figure it out. So we figured it out. And I, I think right around that time I was in a physical uh, fitness program, a workout program with a, a home builder. And he said, man, I've just been left high and dry by the electrician. They, they said they'd finish, and then there's just a bunch of wires hanging everywhere in the crawl space. And I think I said something really dumb like, oh, we, well, we do that. And, uh, and next thing you know, I'm standing in this, in this new construction home with a photo gallery I'd made out of the 
the work I'd done at my own house where I made my wife do the installation work. And the guy, the builder gives me the job and says, okay, great. Um, and when you're done this one, you can do the 15 more down the street. And my eyes got really big because he said yes. And I quickly went home in my Dodge Neon and and got my my brother and I rousted him out of bed. I said, come on, we got some work to do. Went and to the Home Depot and rented a generator and uh, and went out to this house and proceeded to do in two days what I would expect one of our crews to do in about two hours now. But it, we, we finished the job that the builder asked us to do and putting in speakers and wiring and all sorts of things. And uh, that led to us, again, doing... 10, 15 more houses for the guy pretty immediately. And then before too long, I had called up two or three other large builders. And in, in, in another three or four months, we were doing three, 400 homes a year using subcontracted labor, still had my dinky little Dodge Neon, had no idea, no plan, just sort of, hey, we, we got work. Let's, let's do it. And uh, this went on for a couple of years, this kind of pell, pell-mell existence of, hey, we've got work. It's great. No sense other than the electricians at the time were doing the structured cabling in the home. And I don't think the electricians particularly enjoyed that work. The, the builders were just starting to see the value of installing smart home infrastructure and, and so the timing was really good. This is like 2002. And so that really teed us up for the next, I call it four or five years worth of growth there, where I then was able to hire a sales guy, was able to flip some of these subcontracted installers into employees. Um, one of the subcontracted guys um, on this early business lesson ended up taking one of my largest builder customers. So learned some hard lessons in the beginning about losing control of my my brand and subcontracting too much and and what can happen as a result so learned some hard lessons there um continued to grow then in uh 2006 or so we uh we bought our uh, a building that we turned into a design center which we needed to do because a builder had told us that a new builder client I was trying to close that said, hey, we won't work with you unless you have a design center. It's like, oh, no problem. Let's let's schedule you to come visit the design center. And so I think I set the appointment maybe four months out. And at this point, keep in mind, we have no design center. And I've set this appointment now for them to visit the design center. I'm, I'm not even sure I had a piece of property in mind. So quickly hung up the phone with this appointment scheduled. And found a piece of property, closed on the piece of property, uh, and then told all of the folks involved that our, the visit from the builder was actually one month prior to the actual appointment in the spirit of manufacturing crisis and, and burning the ships. And we got to work. So my mother-in-law, God bless her, uh, helped with the, the design. And I, I called in every chit I could from all these different manufacturers. And, uh, you know, every vendor that came over, I'd have our guys like stack 
all of the gear from there. Like the on cue guy came over. So I'd have a chair sitting in a room with all the on cue stuff like we could muster sitting there sort of around me. So like I was father Christmas or something. And I was just looking back on it. It's just ridiculous. Like why anybody said yes to anything, but it, but they did and, and it worked out. And um, then, so, so that continues on and that's 06, that's 07. And then in 2008, um, something fun happened where um, the entire world blew up and I didn't hear a nail gun or any sort of building taking place for a long time. And uh, I, I can remember that we closed the deal. It was a multifamily deal. It was worth quite a bit of money. And, and without that deal, we would have been just dead. And so luckily we had that to get us through, but we had to let people go during the, the recession, the great recession, pay cuts. I mean, it was terrible. And I, I said, you know, I, I never want to end up in this situation again. I never want to be chasing cash. I never want to have to worry about this. And at that time, we had a little bit of security monitoring revenue coming in, but not much other what I would call passive income or service revenue. And so at, at the time, I wouldn't have said, hey, this is a precursor to what came later. But I can remember just feeling really, um, really over a barrel at the notion of chasing cash like we were with all this project work. Um, we then started in 2011 acquiring competitors. And so uh, we began in 2011 by acquiring a company called Home Media, which uh, was owned by a guy named Ray Lepper, he used to be a chairman of, 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 CD, of the CEDIA board. Um, really great guy, was at that point the sort of largest player in the market. So sort of a David buying Goliath kind of moment. And so that really legitimized us in the market. And then uh, in the succeeding years, we acquired uh, another five uh, integrators locally in the market. In uh, 2015, we then launched our commercial division, LiveWire for Business. In 2016, 2017, I got together with Greg Simmons and Ted Bremenkamp, and we created Parasol, 24-7 uh, remote support for integrators by integrators, where we stood up what's now the largest 24-7 remote support company in our industry, handling uh, remote support for not only our own customers, but integrators customers in the US, UK, Canada, where they can call, text, email, chat anytime, day or night, and we'll take care of their issues. And we proactively monitor their systems so that uh, we can keep small issues from turning into big problems. Uh, but again, that was just born born of frustration, born of necessity. It was, it was something that we needed at Livewire and um, found some other friends in the industry who felt the same way and used that as a springboard to, to create that product, which we could never have done by ourselves. Um, but it was very much need-based. And so I've, I've tried to stay true to that mantra of, hey, if we have a problem, is this problem universal? Is this something that not only we're experiencing an issue with, but maybe others in the industry are as well? And so um, a few years later in 2019, um, the same thing happened. We had spent a bunch of money on building training for ourselves in-house at Livewire, creating a product called Livewire University. 
and we were approached by ProSource and asked if we would be uh, able to stand that up as an industry-facing offering, which then later became what's now called ProSource University. The next year, they approached us and said, hey, this is working really well online. Could we do an in-person offering as well? And uh, that enabled us to take uh, one of our facilities here in Richmond and uh, overhaul it. And that became what's called now ProSource Academy. So again, these were problems and challenges we were having at Livewire, but perceived that maybe they were industry, universal problems. And um, so today I, uh, I continue to sort of pursue that same course of, of finding pain points that, uh, that we're having at Livewire and saying, are these problems just live wire problems or are they are they industry problems and if they are hey maybe we can while we're fixing this problem create something that will help our brothers and sisters out out in the industry at the same time so that that's where sort of i find myself today and uh, i wake up every day and i love i love what i do i love that this industry changes constantly i mean it's unrecognizable from when i started and so I love having to reinvent um, and, and we'll continue to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm never, I mean, I'm going out of your feet first. <laughs> That's awesome. Something about the story of you trying to sell a thing before you even had the property to be, is just like, I can see this in a movie. There's a, there's a montage going on of, Oh, we need to put this together now kind of thing. That really is amazing. I, I going back, I like how you said that you were kind of, raised up in it. Are you trying to instill that into your, uh, into your children, uh, to get them into AV? Cause I've also heard of the AV industry. It's kind of like the mafia that once you're in, you can't get out. So are you, I mean, obviously you can say like, well, do what you want, but if you, you would kind of like nudge them and say, Hey, check out all this cool stuff, just like you were. Yeah. So I have three kids. Um, my son, Will is 16. My daughter, Quinn is 14. And then my daughter, Emily's 10. And none of them have really sort of kind of given me the sense that they're super into this stuff at all, which candidly, it's fine. I mean, they, there's a saying, you know, profit's not welcome in his own house. I mean, I think to some extent, like they're, um, they're into their own things. It wouldn't surprise me that at some point, maybe they circle back and they're interested in working in the business. Um, if they are great, if, if they're not, you know, I just want them to be happy and do whatever it is that that they're going to do and just try their best at it. Um, but yeah, I, and I think, do I try to kind of inject my tech stuff into them? Yes. And, and you can tell that because (laughs) your kids are always a great humbling barometer or sort of litmus test as, as to, whatever sort of line of stuff that you're, that you're stating, you know, they feed it right back to you in a very snarky way. So I can tell that they're, they're hearing the, the rhetoric, um, whether they're internalizing it. And as, as like a business nerd would say, like operationalizing it. Um, I think there's just, they're teenagers right now and who the, who the heck knows, but I, I think they're happy. And I just want them to be happy and, um, and I'll continue the drumbeat of, um, of tech, 
um, that this sort of tech psychological warfare, because our house, as you can imagine, is like a constant testing ground uh, full of shiny objects where, um, as I like to say, nothing ever works. So <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, but it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's universal. And, and the best, the best thing I can do, I think is, is meet them where on their level, like if they're like gaming and I'll say, well, isn't it nice that you have this playroom where you can game on your little 4k TV. That's like 5 million yeah. inches, you know, across, et cetera. So, and I'll get a, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I can kind of understand that. Cause like, I mean, I grew up and it's definitely dating myself, but not enough, but I, I did grow up with like a dial up uh, at one point we did switch to broadband eventually, but I think right now um, with like my nieces and nephews, they're growing up with tablets and stuff. It, technology like this is just kind of there. And there's like, it's whatever. When you kind of pull back and go, wait, how does, how do you get this signal to this thing? How do you get this one thing to do whatever you want it to is then the layers for like, go, Oh wait, people do this for that's no, I mean, that was what I was interested in AB uh, when I started here was, Oh, there's a, there's an entire world. And then once you see it, you can't get out. So if anything, we keep that knowledge uh, hidden. Well, it's interesting you say that too, Mitch, because I would say that my observation of my kids, uh, sort of generation, and I'm going to sound like my dad, is they're good users of the tech, like they're consumers of it. But I don't see as much curiosity about how it works because, to some extent, it's gotten out of the way. Like it doesn't it doesn't beg the question of how it works as much anymore because it just does work. It's like a toaster. And so I feel like um, certainly when I was a kid, it was, I, I saw this stuff. Um, before, I mean, it, I grew up in a world where there were no cell phones, where it was just, there was no internet. There was not enough. So I saw this kind of happening. And so I wanted to know how it works. So I, I think there'll always be that, that group that does. Cause I mean, on the flip side, I know plenty of my buddies and their kids and they're into like coding and, you know, steam and robotics and all, all that sort of thing. And, and, and into just things that um, blow my mind. So thank goodness. And, and hopefully that translates into, into us continuing to come out with cool, shiny objects down the road. Speaking of cool things, um, the way that, I've been looking at just some um, the parasol stuff and live wire and remote support and how I always find it fascinating that we just had an internet problem yesterday, um, getting connected on and talking to the people and say, Hey, we'll just reset your router now. And sure enough, the router just starts to blink and, and do its thing. And I'm like, that's awesome. Slightly terrifying, but amazing. So when it comes to something like, uh, that because I've seen on Parasol, I love that one of the statistics you have is like headaches uh, avoided and, you know, calls not during uh, dinner. So what makes a good support system for an integrator? Well, we took the approach that, I mean, ultimately as a group, um, I feel like there's there's reactance with integrators as an audience, right? This is a group that doesn't really like being told what to do. In fact, like you tell them, you tell them up their default reaction is down and that's fine. I mean, that's, it takes, I think a special set of 
characteristics to sort of launch out and start a business, et cetera. So we knew that when we started, we didn't want to be too sort of heavy handed with the way we, um, the way we, we required the systems to be configured. So we'd said, Hey, look, all you need to start is an overseas pro hub, which is pretty simple piece of gear that snap one sells and they don't, they don't charge a subscription for the service. So we thought, okay, this is a good place to start. So that's your baseline. From there, we want to see the, the gear labeled using a certain, uh, a certain labeling system, which is developed by my partner, Ted, we call it blueprint. But, um, we knew that if we were ever going to be able to cater to a group of folks who were installing Crestron and Savant and Control 4 and Elan or Nice or whatever, et cetera, all these disparate systems out there that, and the unifying factor was they're all network connected, that we had to have a common language and, um, and, and we had to have an easy way to sort of um, uh, allow, allow uh, our technical support folks to easily kind of move from one to the other. So that's, that's how we did it. And, and, um, uh, including the connectivity. So, um, for example, Mitch, if, you know, in, in, in your scenario yesterday, you know, one of our support agents be able to say, okay, well, there's this router, you know, it's labeled here, boop, boop, you know, there it's, I can reach it or even better, you've got an app and you just take out the app and you can kind of reboot it yourself potentially. But, we, uh, but the theme there or the important piece is that we, we kind of set some loose bumper lanes because what we'd seen before was that the, these, um, solutions that had come out prior, which was like super, um, tight bumper lanes where they required a bunch of TPS reports and sort of a bunch of paperwork and, and things that it just didn't fly. You know, you need something nimble. You need something an installer can just go out, boom, put in an overseas pro hub or even activate the overseas pro hub functionality in, in, a, in a control four system or in some of the other gear that has overseas pro hub capabilities. And then that system can be monitored. Um, but it's just like anything else, garbage in garbage out. So as long as you've got some way to monitor it overseas pro hub, and then a commitment to label it in a way that somebody coming along behind you can understand that it's an Apple TV versus labeling it outlet one, then, um, we're set up for success. And that's why when we commission a system, um, bring it online, we're sort of doing a gut check where the installer calls in and says, I'm ready. I'm all set, ready to turn it over to you guys. And we're like, Oh yeah, cool. Like, let's, let's take a look. And most of the time it's, it's great. But when you're, when you're first getting going with it, it's, and, and you're really not catching, um, necessarily bad parasol behavior. You, you're kind of arresting like bad habits, period. And so that's why a lot of the owners who sign on and become dealers love it because it's like a trust but verify kind of deal. Um, and trust but verify is wonderful because, I mean, anybody knows running an integration business, like you cannot check every single one of your installs the way you want to and the way you could when it was just you at the beginning. But with something like Parasol acting as kind of a compliance mechanism. I mean, that right there is worth the price of admission. That's awesome. So in addition to your uh, Parasol and Livewire activities, you also do a lot of writing, uh, usually about the industry. Um, 
uh we actually pick a lot of stories from it usually because i'm the guy who picks the stories and i'm like man dang it henry's written another really interesting article and it's always something that can sprout out a conversation so just honestly where where does this come from is you are you just milling about and just kind of just thinking about how an industry is, is it is it just a lot of experience that you just um put forth no great question um I think a lot of the stand-up comics uh, have something like nothing's off limits um, or I've also heard the phrase everything's copy and for me everything is copy so it doesn't matter what I'm going through or what I'm doing like I'm going to write about it like nothing's off limits if I've got some issue here with an employee or some friction here like I'm going to write about the nasty stuff that's going on inside my own business the great stuff that's going on Um, because sometimes if I'm frustrated by it, then it writes itself. It's like therapy for me. I can just go and mm, I can just, you know, five minutes crank it out. Or for example, yesterday, Sonos sent me their new, the move to, to look at, right to it, to evaluate. And one of our guys did an unboxing video of it. And then I just took it, um, took it home and, and just set it up side by side with the old move. And I just played it side by side and the new one just blew my doors off compared to the old one. So boom, it, it just right there, my passion that I experienced, cause I experienced this thing is like 3000% better than the old one. I'm just gonna, I mean, I got 400 words and it'll take me like five minutes to write that. So that's where they all come from. And there, or like last week, you know, this whole AI thing had been, something I've been screwing around with since last November. And I thought, Hey, let's, um, let's just write a quick little deal about, you know, here's, here's five little doodads that I'm using in the, uh, you know, five doodads and five tools that I'm using, uh, AI tools. And maybe that'll help some integrators out who are maybe struggling with the big wide world of AI and maybe getting sick of hearing about it and, and they don't have a, a means of using it for their business. I used to, you know, we, I, Tim made this joke and so I'm going to steal it shamelessly. Like we used to ask people five years from now, what do you think uh, things are going to be like? But thanks to a certain giant earth shattering pandemic thing, it doesn't matter. Your five year plans don't, don't count for nothing. So uh, I want to steal instead from a different person uh, from our XR star uh, show where she always likes to end the show asking their, uh, the guest, um, what is your greatest hope and what is your greatest fear? And you can take either one uh, if you want to go bad news first. Um, yeah, I think, first. I think my greatest hope is that we as an industry um, continue down this path of understanding that we are, um, we are, we are not, uh, we are not going to become disintermediated by AI or, um, or anything else. As long as we remember that we are local and that we are here to save our customers time and understand our role as sort of a trusted advisor and look to monetize those opportunities in terms of whether it's um, uh, having service plans uh, or memberships or whatever they're called 
as part of every single deal we do. Um, those that, that aren't doing that, who are continuing down the path of just project after project, um, I worry about those, those companies to, to some extent. I think there's going to be a little bit of a culling of the herd there. Um, and then, so that's my greatest hope is that we continue to, down the road of, of recognizing kind of who we are and who we aren't. And then my biggest fear would be um, that we um, that we become calcified, which sounds strange. We're supposed to be technologists, but that we stop embracing change as quickly as maybe we should, because it's now happening. It was already happening at an accelerative pace. And now that rate of acceleration or that rate of transformation is stair-stepping more and more and more. And so the, because of those elements, um, I would say that um, my biggest fear is that the, the, there's maybe a lot of us who might not be recognizing how fast the environment is changing right now and might be reactively pivoting too late, um, which tags back to um, pro just changing our business models to be more, being more service focused, which, you know, I, I would not claim to be an original idea necessarily as much as inspired by a presentation I saw at Cedia, the keynote talked about the integrator of 2027, um, sort of a four year, uh, sort of long view where, um, this futurist and then great folks like, um, uh, Rich Green and uh, Gordon Vince, uh, Zayden, and, and a few of these other folks weighed in on that. These are some really smart people who I respect a lot. So I, I tend to sort of orient my ship uh, or my compass towards sort of macro messaging like that. All right. That's awesome. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, how can we find you uh, for any of your writing purposes or uh, Livewire or even Parasol? At Get Livewire. Um, I'm, on, I'm on all sorts of social media, et cetera. And uh, yeah, any, 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 any questions, comments, et cetera. I love it. And I love talking to folks in our industry. It's how I learn. Thank you so much. For me, don't don't follow me. I mean, I do write. It's uh, it's stuff like this. This is like the only physical copy in existence. Definitely not about the AV industry. Um, instead, if you want more of that, go to avnation.tv where you get shows like Resi Week, like AV Week, uh, coverage of shows like Cedia Expo 2023. When you're on the website, check out those underwriters. Those are the ones that support us and let us go to shows and let us do shows. And we thank them for that. That's all the time we have for this Aviation Nation special. <laughs>